0: Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, the men and women working in Virginia's public schools. VEA, teaching, learning, leading, online at veanea.org.
1: Forget about that green bean casserole with the fried onions, and set aside the sweet potatoes topped with marshmallows. Today, we're going back in culinary time to the early days of holiday feasts in the colony. Welcome to Virginia Conversations. I'm Lily Lee. Thanksgiving is just around the corner, and as you plan your holiday meal, you might be surprised at how much of it is descended from Virginia's first settlers and the Native Americans who broke bread with them. First up... We're going to take a trip through our audio archives and bring you a report that was produced a couple of years ago. If you're wondering what you might make for dinner tonight, it hasn't lost its relevance. The Special Collections Department at Virginia Tech's Newman Library might offer some ideas, thousands upon thousands of ideas, actually. A culinary collection there contains more than 3,500
2: books chronicling three centuries of food. Here's reporter Connie Stevens. You can learn a lot about the times by reading a cookbook. Virginia's history, in fact, is shelved at the Newman Library in the Peacock-Harper Culinary History Collection, started by two former Virginia Tech faculty members. Kira Dietz, archivist in
0: Special Collections, explains. It was a collection of books from Dorothy Peacock and Laura Harper. And that was what what kind of started out as the Peacock Harper collection. As they decided to expand that and donations started coming in with related materials, the overall umbrella title of Culinary Collection developed. And Ann Hertzler, who's also a former faculty member here, I have started the Ann Hertzler Children's Cookbook and Nutrition Literature Collection, which also falls under that umbrella.
2: You'll find recipes, or receipts as they were once called, household tips, advice on domestic economy, social standards, and food science. Take the earliest volume housed here, from 1693. The title says it all.
0: A pocket companion containing things necessary to be known by all that values their health and happiness, being a plain way of nature's own prescribing to cure most diseases in men, women, and children by kitchen physic only, to which is added an account of how a man may live well and plentifully for two pence a day. Through centuries of cooking history, you can discern the
2: taste of the times. For instance, our ancestors would pickle anything. How else to preserve food? There was also a lot of eating of certain birds that much of society no longer pursues for the plate. And recipes from seed cake to okra soup
0: weren't quite as precise as Betty Crocker might like. You come across these texts from the 17th and 18th century that say a dash of this or take a pinch of this, and we don't know what that equivalent is. You don't know what you're getting into at that point. You could end up making something that nobody wants to eat anyway.
2: (laughs) To celebrate the growing collection's 10th anniversary, the Peacock Harper Culinary History Friends Group met at the Roanoke Country Club for a special presentation from Stanton cookbook author Nancy Carter Crump. Her book, Hearthside Cooking, covers the development of food in Virginia. The club chef prepared a Revolutionary War-era menu, all recipes from Crump's Cookbook. Mary Rappaport guides members through the buffet.
3: We'll start right here. This is Mary Randolph, and she is one of the big names in cookbooks. This is her asparagus soup, and it it tastes the same today. And this is is, uh, her soup right here. The same thing, Mary Randolph's peas with mint. This is corn pudding, and this is totally true to the recipe. It's wonderful.
2: Member Priscilla Richardson gave the fried chicken with sauce a big fork's sup.
4: It's absolutely
2: wonderful. It, it tastes historical because most people nowadays don't go to this much trouble to cook. Richardson says when she attends these Peacock Harper Friends gatherings, she's often ready to get home and cook and crack open her own antique cookbook collection.
4: But I'm inspired all the time. It's called hunger. I love to cook all these old things. When I was just... 10 or something I bought my first cookbook which was the Williamsburg cookbook with all the old recipes brought up to date and I've been cooking from that ever since.
2: The food is wonderful. I must say it's a great experience to know that we're eating things that might have been served in the 18th century. From hoe cakes to mushroom ketchup, stewed ginger root pears to roast goose and fricasseed rabbit, have Virginia's taste buds really changed? That depends on where you are having dinner.
0: Cookbooks, however, have come a long way. By the early 20th century, you have a lot more images. So you start to get into cookbooks that are heavily filled with pictures, color pictures, that you, so you can see what it is you're supposed to be making. You know, it helps you get direction, but also gives you something to aspire to, that kind of visual appeal. Big pictures, better to
2: comprehend and reconstruct those 1950s jello molds and deviled ham canapes. I'm Connie Stevens.
5: Come on to my house, my house, I'm going to give you candy. Come on to my house, my
1: house, I'm going to give you Now joining us for our pre-Thanksgiving Day conversation is the food author Connie refers to in her story, Nancy Carter Crump. Not only an author, but a culinary historian as well. Also with me in the studio in Richmond is someone who brings Nancy's writings to life each day, Laura Templin. Interpretive Site Supervisor at Jamestown Settlement and Yorktown Victory Center. Thanks to both of you for being here today.
4: Thank you for having Thank us. Thank
1: you for inviting us. I want to start off with, with you, Nancy. Uh, you have a couple of books here. Oh, you are so uh, so engaged in your research, and uh, you pro- there probably aren't enough books to contain it all. <laughs> Hearthside Cooking is one of your books, and also Dining with the Washingtons, which I have yes. in front of me, which is absolutely
4: gorgeous. But dining with the Washington <clears throat> excuse me, dining with the Washingtons is a collaborative effort. I'm I'm not the only person involved with that. I did develop the recipes for it, about about two hundred, uh, from original sources. Uh, that are in the book, and obviously you can try them in your modern kitchen. Uh, It just came out about a year ago. Um, Great fun. Your interest in researching these colonial histories goes way, way back in your life. Oh, yes. I used to work at Colonial Williamsburg. I majored in Colonial Virginia history, and I've just always loved it. And to get through college, I opened a catering business in which my specialty was historical parties. So I was doing food research when it wasn't popular. We should point out that some of your research has entailed actual journals. Yes, again, I'm very lucky in that there are terrific repositories out there that uh, contain letters and diaries, journals written by people. You can use farm records. Uh, and then, of course, as I was working on our side cooking, a lot of people through the years would say, well, Nancy Carter, I have... A receipt book, a family receipt book. You might like to see it. And invariably, I was able to glean from these things and learn so much from them. A family receipt book, a, a list of items that were purchased? No, a receipt book is the old term for recipe. Oh, so I love books. it.
1: R-E-C-I-P-E.
4: receipt Your receipt
1: So for Jamestown Yorktown, a lot of folks probably um, – have over the years also contributed to the huge database that you have.
5: Absolutely. Uh, we're really lucky that we're uh, a fairly well-known uh, couple of museums, Jamestown Settlement and Yorktown Victory Center. And so we do have lots of wonderful research opportunities. And like Nancy Carter, I spend a fair amount of time reading old cookbooks and old letters and old diaries and old receipt books. So it's a lot of fun to bring it to life, though, and for any of your listeners who want to see that happen in action, they should come and visit on Thanksgiving Day, the Friday and Saturday thereafter. We have a special celebration that we do every year called Foods and Feasts, and what we're doing is we're talking about and showing and and cooking up uh, all the different kinds of recipes that are appropriate to the time periods of 18th Century at Yorktown Victory Center and the 17th Century at Jamestown Settlement.
1: Okay, well, let's start with the central part of a Thanksgiving meal. A focal point is the turkey, and it actually uh, isn't uh, new to us. We can't claim it.
5: Who wants to take that? Well, I mean, food historians can't credit a specific person with bringing the turkey from the New World to the Old World. But we know it happened right away. Uh, So think back to Christopher Columbus. He comes trotting over here looking for the Indies, and he finds instead the New World. And they bring back, the Spanish and Portuguese explorers bring back the turkey, among other things, as, you know, look what we found. And it was a hit immediately. I mean, it's this huge, delicious bird. How could you not love it? And so you see turkeys in Spain in the early 1500s, and they spread all over the place. And uh, that is something that really rapidly became a a spectacular dish for banquets, for celebrations, just like it is today. And uh, in fact, In the 1560s, in Italy, there was actually a vote to exclude it from banquets because it was overly luxurious in their view. Now you can buy it for 39 cents a pound. So So much for luxury.
4: Yes, I read that uh, Henry VIII ate uh, turkey, which was a surprise to me. So it made it to England pretty quickly, too.
5: Yeah, actually, um, and he liked to have them in pies, apparently, as did Queen Elizabeth. Um, So there were lots of of turkey pie recipes. But by 1615, Gervais Markham, who's one of the cookbook writers that we use, um, he recommended that they be roasted and served with a a sauce of onions and fruit.
1: So what about other forms of preparation,
4: Nancy, uh, for the turkey? Uh, They had different tools then. Oh, (laughs) they're Uh, roasting them over the fire on a spit, uh, which is being turned, obviously, by either a person or a a dog or another creature that would turn them. And once you have tasted turkey that has been roasted over the fire, it's hard to go back to the modern kitchen (laughs) to do it. It really is good, and they're beautiful. Um, Have you done it? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, more so with with, uh, chickens, but turkeys are fun to do, too. It takes longer, obviously, but I've done them both stuffed and unstuffed. And um, for people, and I'm sure Laura would agree with this, people who come to see this done, who are observing it being done, are really excited to see this in progress. Mm -hmm. Because that, these using my hands, I'm not on TV. I shouldn't be doing that. Um... To see it turning on the spit, to see it develop, to see it turn this golden brown and the juices begin to drip um, is a real treat.
5: Yeah, it's absolutely different from roasting in your oven, which is, after all, really baking it uh, as opposed to roasting it. And, of course, um, the Native Americans were roasting it on a spit for centuries because this is where it came from. It came from here, and so uh, we do that in the Powhatan Indian Village at Jamestown Settlement. They'll see that.
1: Laura, one of the things that's interesting about Jamestown is that you can go and see how things are done back then.
5: Absolutely. That's what makes it a lot of fun. We're trying to bring history to life. Uh, We don't have time machines yet, folks, so this (laughs) is the closest we can do. And at our museums and the outdoor areas, we've recreated everything as closely as we can from those original historic records. So
1: that means, say, a pig, that you might bring in?
5: Absolutely, and in fact, funny you should mention that, because um, while the turkey did come in from the new world to the old world and was accepted right away, uh, pork was a major part of the early colonial diet. Pigs kind of take care of themselves, and so they became a big, big part of what you were eating. And in fact, this is the time of year when it starts to get cold that you would butcher hogs. And so on Thanksgiving Day and the Friday following, we will be butchering hogs. Um, We're not slaughtering them I want to make sure all those parents out there with small children are not concerned about that the The pig is already taken care of and cleaned and is ready to be turned into ham and bacon and that's what we'll be doing and sausage um, at both of our museums on Thanksgiving Day and the Friday afterwards we have a call from Steve from Charlottesville go ahead with your question or comment
6: hey Laura Ackerman this is Steve Whitaker I used to work with you how are you
5: I'm fantastic Steve how are you <laughs> I'm fine I happen
6: to be visiting and I heard you. I wanted to call to ask, actually both of you, if you don't mind, how have your own family's holiday traditions changed um, as a result of what you're, what you're doing and learning at
5: work? Well, I mean, uh, we definitely adopted some of the historic recipes because they're really delicious. And one of those things that you run into a lot of times is this sort of rumor, I guess, that English food was not good or is not good. And I'm not sure exactly where that came from because all of the historic recipes are fantastic that I've tried. And uh, certainly we... uh, We've made a few of them, especially some of the side dishes that have become popular with my family, some of the, the pies as well. So uh, we, we've eaten more than our fair share of 17th and 18th century cooking out of my own kitchen.
6: Great. Thanks.
5: Okay. My turn.
4: Uh, as, as Lara said, we have adopted a number of our, of these uh, old traditions as well. I don't cook on a spit, but we do. I do use uh, early recipes in my modern kitchen. And I would say that pumpkin pie in particular was probably just a pudding in those days, but pumpkin pie is something that has become very traditional at home as well as uh, turkey and cornbread. That's another big thing that we do every year that would have been known by the uh, early settlers.
1: Oh, I loved cornbread when I was in elementary school. That was one of the experiential things they handed us when we were learning about colonial history, it, it hasn't changed much, has it?
4: Well, yes, it has. Well,
1: I think it has. We oh, but back. then again, I have to make a qualifier. It was a long time ago that I was in L.A. <laughs> <L. laughs>
4: well, the, uh, we didn't have uh, baking powder. um baking soda that kind of thing until the 19th century really early 19th century so breads even cornbread was made with yeast one of the best recipes that I have found in my research is by my friend and and who I look on as a mentor and that's Mary Randolph who was published in 1824 but her recipes would have been known in the federal period uh, which is the area that I focus on most and um, that book stayed in print right up until the 20th century. I, I, uh, I love her work, and her cornbread recipe is something that we do every year. Can
1: you give and, us an overview of what that might entail?
4: Uh, well you, I I'm not sure everything you. you. make a batter, obviously. That is a yeast that has yeast in it. It's set aside to rise. And then it's cooked. I I have a recipe right in here if you want me to look it up. So folks can uh, check out Hearthside oh, Cooking. Yes. This is how we get your book sold. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hearthside, so Hearthside Cooking. Hearthside Cooking uh, was first published in 1986. It was totally revised with a lot more history, uh, some new recipes and uh, new forward and so forth. But, and published in 2008 by the University of North Carolina Press. And it came out in paper back in August, so it is available. You can get it on Amazon, I'm not supposed to say that, Uh, directly from uh, UNC Press. I, of course, keep copies if you want autographed copies, and uh, it's definitely worth having in your kitchen. Heartside Cooking by by Nancy Carter Crump. Yeah, go ahead. The recipes are shown three different ways. A lot of people see the book and think it's only intended for, for food to be cooked in a fireplace. I show the original recipe. So you're seeing seeing it in the eighteenth century language, nineteenth century language. You're seeing it for the fire and then you're seeing it for the modern kitchen. So you can cook these recipes in your modern kitchen. That's exciting. Thank you. I <laughs> it's think really so. exciting. Well,
5: and it's really important because as was mentioned in the the little vignette from the past that you played earlier, the recipes in in the past were not precise, a lot of them. They have very little in the way of measurements. They really are more of a list of ingredients when you think of that name receipt. It's a list, and sometimes it says things like butter the size of a walnut, but a lot of times it just says do it to your taste or as you like it and cook it till it's done. So it's really important to have those modern redactions to help you out if you've never tried a historic recipe before.
1: We are talking with Nancy Carter Crump, Not only an author, but a culinary historian as well. And you just heard the voice of Laura Templin, interpretive site supervisor at Jamestown Settlement and Yorktown Victory Center. You're listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. We'll have more in a moment. But first, next week, an encore presentation of our program on poetry with the state's past and current poet laureates on the next Virginia Conversations. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. Today we're talking turkey, colonial turkey, that is. Our guests today are Nancy Carter Crump, culinary historian and author, and Laura Templin, interpretive site supervisor at Jamestown Settlement and Yorktown Victory Center. And I want to start with you, Nancy. We we talk about Thanksgiving. However, it's a very different celebration for us than it was for them.
4: As far no I may have other ideas about this, but uh, as far as I've been able to tell in the research I've done, there were not any set feasts um, when the settlers celebrated their first thanksgiving here it was sixteen nineteen and they had landed safely at uh, Berkeley what is now Berkeley plantation uh in late November early December and uh, they had a celebration of Thanksgiving in a, a church-type service in which they were giving thanks for having had arrived here in the colony safely. And of course, they were they were able to cook. They had provisions from the ship. They immediately started hunting. They were able to gather the oysters, crabs, seafood from the from the James, um, but. Certainly not the kind of Thanksgiving we think of today. Thanksgiving did not even become an official holiday until 1863 when Abraham Lincoln made it a holiday.
5: I absolutely agree. Or or in our case,
4: Daniel (laughs) (laughs) Day-Lewis.
5: Right, right. Uh, But no, I agree completely that Thanksgivings were traditionally in historic times a celebration or a giving of thanks that could happen at any time. They weren't a set date in time that you looked forward to the way that we do and and they were not an official holiday. You would just declare a Thanksgiving and, and perhaps a good time would be at harvest when you had plenty to eat but you could be just grateful for whatever you can have a thanksgiving for a safe arrival you can have a thanksgiving for uh, all the women showing up when they showed up (laughs) and 1620 you could have lots of reasons to have a a thanksgiving that's great we have a call from meredith from richmond who's
1: a fan of yours nancy go ahead meredith hi good morning good Good morning.
3: morning Um, I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Um, my father gave me a signed copy of your book last year for Christmas, and it is such a pleasure to read. I just love it.
0: Keep and talking. I love to, to you, hear
3: this. Oh, <laughs> um, well, my question to you is, what is your favorite recipe from the book? I'd love to know.
4: I don't have a favorite. I have several favorites. Um, try the Shirley Plantation soup, the mushroom soup. That is really popular whenever I cook it. Uh, there's a couple of desserts that I particularly like. One is, or uh, pears, that, is, uh, that are stewed with uh, ginger. And then I, sort, uh, let me try again, I serve them with a custard sauce. Uh, Queen's cakes is an early 19th century recipe. It's also found in the 18th century cookbooks, but the one I developed was early 19th century. And they're a little basically a little spice cupcake that people rave over. I should talk about main dishes perhaps. Uh, peas with the lettuce is one. Um, and, uh, oh gosh, I have to stop and think roast pork is another that people really enjoy. And I often cook that at Christmas. What else are you interested in?
3: Well, you know, I, well, of course, everyone loves the great cake. Um, I absolutely love corn fritters, and I was excited to see that in the book because I got to, in college, work at a historical site where we would make those for special occasions, and they're always so popular. Um, and I think we might be trying your duck recipe um, this year for Christmas ourselves. So. Oh, wait a minute. Meredith, excited.
1: you're not going to Applebee's or Howard Johnson's? <laughs> 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 no, none of that for us. <laughs> That sounds great, and I you had something to chime in about your favorites.
5: Oh okay. no, I just um, I I have I was just smiling and nodding along because I agree. I love the corn fritters, and um, you know I was just hoping she has wonderful luck with that duck recipe because uh, roast duck, roast goose, you know you can't get much more traditional than that.
1: Meredith, thank you so much for your call. So the book, just to let the rest of our listeners know, is called Dining with the Washingtons,
4: and. You co-authored this, Nancy Carter Crump. There were several authors involved. Uh, Colonel Williamsburg staff, I'm sorry, not Colonel Williamsburg, Mount Vernon staff, um, worked, the archaeologists, the historian, uh, the ceramics people, the gardening people, developed various chapters of the book that were f- focused on food and what the Washingtons were growing and eating at Mount Vernon. They asked me to develop the recipes for that, so there. Are, um, I think it's something like 196 recipes. I had 210, and they had to cut out a few, based on 18th century sources. They, unfortunately, the Washington, Mary Washington, Martha Washington didn't leave a whole lot of recipes for us to look at. We have one that we know she did. <clears throat> Excuse me for a great cake. And there's another one for um, something called Cherry Bounce, which was found in her papers, which is a, a heady brandy drink that George Washington adored. In fact, he would pack a canteen of it to take with him on trips. And people love that recipe. <laughs> right now, they love that recipe. Sounds good. When you talk about a Martha
1: Washington recipe, would it have been more like she was project leader? I can't imagine her being in the kitchen and
4: cooking. No, she would. Well, she would supervise, but she also had a housekeeper at Mount Vernon, which is yeah. But uh, these women were trained to know what was going on in the kitchen. Obviously, they were trained. They would oversee. Um, Nellie Custis uh, leaves a record of, having such a headache after developing a pudding for a party that she had to go to bed and miss her own dinner party <laughs> she took sedlitz powder which is like alka seltzer so women uh, plantation women uh supervise what is going on in the kitchen even if they weren't actually cooking themselves and they were trained to do the fancy foods janice from union hall good morning to you
6: hi how are you great Good. Thank you for having this conversation. Um, it's very interesting. I wanted to talk to have you add, um, address maybe the possibility of venison at the early Thanksgivings. A couple of years ago, I started making a deer leg every Thanksgiving, thinking that maybe I'd be adding a little bit of history to our meal. And I was wondering if you could talk about whether I was correct or not.
5: Oh, thank you. Laura Templin. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, venison is a huge part of the... Native American diet, especially on the eastern seaboard, and would have been eaten by the colonists when they arrived as well. There are innumerable records of trade between the colonists and the Powhatans here in Virginia, and uh, in fact, John Smith spent Christmas with the Kecoughtan uh, one year, and he said That they ate uh, an incredible variety of food, and he said that that they were never more merry nor fed on more plenty. And he lists besides venison, oysters, fish. Um, wild fowl, and good bread, which would have been cornbread. Um, so the, the Powhatans and the English were spending um, Christmas together. Of course, Christmas would not have meant anything to the Powhatans at that point in time, having just run into the English. But uh, you are going to see venison on your table. Um, I'm curious how you're cooking it. Um, I usually
6: just put it in the oven with some bacon and onions and garlic, Um But, you know, roasting it on a spit sounds good, but that might be a little bit too adventurous for me.
5: (laughs) might be a little difficult in the average modern kitchen, too. (laughs) But that sounds good. Yeah, you absolutely, with venison, have to remember that as a wild meat, it doesn't have a lot of fat to it naturally. And all the old historic recipes call for larding it or basically adding bacon fat to it to give it a little more juice.
7: Well,
6: I didn't even know I was doing something historical when I added the bacon. That sounds great.
4: You can also pre- wrap you can also wrap it in parchment which will help uh, bring the juices. That'll into help me put the, the, the yeah. juices. Yeah.
6: Oh, I'll have to try that also. Yeah. Well thank you so much. I'm definitely gonna pick out um your book pick up your book, Mrs.
4: Crump. Please do. Several uh, copies. Great Christmas present. It sounds
6: really interesting. <laughs> I appreciate your talking about this today.
4: Thank you so, so much. Have for a your great holiday. You
1: thank too, Janice. Thank you. Bye bye. I'll be interested to see the police and fire logs after this show to see if house fires. right. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> We've got a call from Yvonne from Spotsylvania County. Go ahead, Yvonne.
4: Oh uh, yes, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying the program. And uh, in fact, I didn't know I wasn't aware.
3: I like National Public Radio, but I wasn't aware of this particular program, And, but so it's so refreshing. And my question is, since
4: we're uh, talking about the colonial and the federal period, and um, I was wondering because,
3: hello? Oh,
0: yes, you're, you're still just... there.
3: Oh, OK. Uh, I, I had the, um, it is kind of understood that the slaves did a lot of cooking. Uh, I'm not sure doing how early this period is in your book addresses, but I was just wondering where does the slave cook aspect fit into
4: the colonial uh, recipes and the colonial cooking? The slaves are doing the heavy labor. Uh, that's what it boils down to. They're uh, they're uh, usually unable to read the mistress of the house would read recipes to them uh, they were responsible for the you know the pounding the chopping the butchering the the not especially creative parts of the meal although plenty of, of slave cooks were creative in the kitchen and one of the things i like to think about and that i talk about in the book is what a sort of a symbiotic relationship between these two women you've got uh, a woman who was in charge of another woman, a slave, and what was that slave feeling? Uh, was she proud of what she was cooking? Did she feel resentment because she had to be overseen by a white woman? I often think about that, but they were very definitely uh, a crucial part of, of these old kitchens. These and there are some exceptions, too, like Monticello. Jefferson
1: relied on uh, really talented cooks. Absolutely. Absolutely.
5: And um, actually
4: Martha Washington had one too.
5: Okay. All of whom were slaves. Well, and there were trained slaves, those who could read recipes or even knew French style cooking and such too. But um, even on an ordinary farm, there's still a presence of slaves, even if you were a small farmer and the slaves on the farm were working in the fields and not cooking in the kitchen, and mom was still cooking in the kitchen. Um, there was still some cooking being done by enslaved people for themselves to sort of add to the dishes that were shared. So you start to see in the late 18th century a real synergy of the African foods that – in fact some slaves were even growing some of their own foods. they had small gardens of their own so that they could grow things like peanuts and hot peppers and such that weren't real popular with the English yet. And so you start to see what we call soul food kind of moving in to the cuisine and that's something that I'm really fascinated by, but it's extremely difficult to document for the reasons that um, Nancy Carter Crump mentioned is that there's not a lot of writing, reading and writing, going on. There's not a lot of it written down slave stuff so we have to look at recollections collected um, stories uh, coming from those who were enslaved and most of those are are 19th century but uh, if you go to Yorktown Victory Center you will see uh, a slave garden and we do discuss uh, the aspects of slavery because as uncomfortable a topic as it is in history it's an important one your calls are next Crystal and Jackie hold for just a moment
1: but first Andrea from Blacksburg go ahead with your call
7: Hi, thank you for taking my call. I was good morning. Wondering if the, good morning. I was wondering if the cookbook authors could um, address the topic of what sorts of herbs and spices
3: were used
7: in uh. Uh, colonial cooking and native cooking.
4: Right. Thank you for your question. Most anything you can find now, <clears throat> which was an amazing discovery for me when I began cooking uh, with old recipes. and. But, of course, a lot of them, the spices and so forth, had to be imported, but women were putting in herb gardens pretty quickly after they arrived here in the colony. So, for example? Oh,
6: golly.
5: Uh, rosemary, uh, parsley, thyme, orange. <laughs> And uh, also, you're going to see those imported spices like nutmeg and maize, yeah. ginger. Yeah. I mean, they, they were definitely using those things. And sometimes with a fairly heavy hand, in spite of the fact that they were expensive, you know, hey, I can afford it. You're going to taste it. Um, now, the Powhatan Indians, on the other hand, did not use a whole lot of herbs and spices. And it was something where really the flavor of the, of the meats and so forth uh, is really coming through. But um, the soups and so forth that we've reconstructed are still really delicious. And, and you can really taste like the pumpkin and so forth and not have to rely on, on all those herbs and spices after all. Also, the importation of the, of the spices
4: uh, indicate some degree of wealth, not because they're expensive. So the uh, general population might not have had those or had access to many of them anyway. Good morning, Crystal from Reiner. Go
7: ahead with your call. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I recently started looking through my great-great-grandmother's recipe book, and one of the recipes called for 10-cent uh, cake chocolate. 10-cent
1: cake chocolate. I
7: love it. Yes. And so I'm wondering if there's a way to figure out how much
3: that really is without so much trial and error.
4: Hmm, that's a really good question. Did you say 10-cent what, yeah, Ten I, cent cake I, chocolate. Yes, I'm assuming that's how much it cost to buy the
7: amount that you yeah, needed for the yeah. recipe at this point in time, and probably the 1880s
4: or 1890s. I would. I'm not sure, obviously, uh, but I would think that maybe some like the Hershey kitchens or the Mars kitchens could help you with that. Yeah, perhaps you do, Laura. I have um, no idea Well, how to you know, that.
5: pricing is one of those really difficult yes. things because it changes so drastically throughout time. Yes. Um, but uh, I mean, she may be referring to a cake of chocolate, like Baker's chocolate, that's still sold today as well. But not the same but size. not right? the same size okay. as one of those full blocks. I would think too. I would think maybe a, a, you can try taking a small piece of one of those blocks of Baker's chocolate that you can buy in the store. Okay. That's delicious!
7: All right. Thank you so much for your help.
1: Thanks, Crystal. Jackie from Montgomery County, go ahead with your comment or
7: question. Good morning. Um, so far, y'all have spoken of uh, traditions
3: from the eastern part of the state, but the western part of the state during colonial times was predominantly settled by people of German descent. I'm wondering oh. what you have
7: on their cooking traditions.
5: Well, um, it's interesting because when I was getting ready for this show, I was trying to look up everything I could think of as far as history. And um, there's one of those traditional Thanksgiving dishes we haven't mentioned yet, which is pecan pie. And pecans are definitely a, a native New World nut. Um, they're in the hickory family and something which you know the Powhatan Indians and others were eating. But um, there is some suggestion that the modern pecan pie – prior to Caro syrup uh, taking it over in the, in the 20th century, was heavily influenced by uh, Germanic cooking and that mm-hmm. it was perhaps um, German settlers, especially in the South, who were trying to recreate um, the Nustort, um, the, the sort of nut pies and, and rich nut desserts of Germany that helped to develop the southern pecan pie. Oh, that sounds delicious you also find
4: the dutch oven piece uh, is certainly of germanic uh, origin things cookies for instance are uh, come from that area um, a whole new way of looking at food that i am just beginning to look at and since we're living out that way now that's right. We should say that we haven't forgotten about the western
1: part of the state, Jackie, and we do appreciate your mentioning the Germans, but uh, our own Nancy Carter Crump is living in Stanton now. She left Richmond to go move out west. You love it out there, don't you? I certainly do. Now, we're going to come back in just a moment, but this reminder that you're listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. Uh, past editions of Virginia Conversations can be heard at Virginia public Radio. Org. That's virginiapublicradio.org. So we'll be back with more in a moment from Nancy Carter Crump and Laura Templin. You're listening to Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio. Today we're discussing holiday dishes, past and present. And our guests today are Nancy Carter Crump, culinary historian and author, and Laura Templin, interpretive site supervisor at Jamestown Settlement and Yorktown Victory Center. And you can join our conversation by calling our toll-free number, 866-611-NEWS. That's 866 866-611- 611 Six three nine seven. And by the way, Laura, what is the website for the Jamestown Settlement and Yorktown Victory Center?
5: It's historyisfun.org, all in one word, historyisfun, all lowercase. And there are all kinds of wonderful things on there for uh, folks who want to come visit, for teachers who are teaching, for students who have homework assignments that involve those uh, topics of conversation. There's a whole lot there, so uh, definitely I encourage your listeners to visit it.
1: Great. And Nancy Carter Crump, we can find out more about your works through various sources, but we can Google titles of your books, such as Hearthside Cooking and Dining with the Washingtons. Now, we have a call from Mike from Chesapeake. I want to point out that if you've been listening the duration of this show, all of our callers have been female. Mike is the first male caller, and he has a beer question. Go Mm -hmm.
7: ahead, Mike.
6: Is that ironic or what? I love it. Uh, I would like you know. to make a comment about your, your cookbook. I'm very intrigued with the uh, Cooking with the Washingtons because you list uh, the old recipes. A lot of the historical cookbooks I've seen
7: um,
6: kind of dumb it down for the modern, you know, for us modern folks and uh, that I'm really really interested in seeing, you know, what I have and my question is... Thank you. Um, I just recently became interested in colonial brewing uh, recipes and techniques and I'm, I'm not finding a lot of a lot of information there. I wonder if you had any resources on where I can find out more about uh, what they did in the
0: colonial times for, for brewing well. their
4: sugar. Beer is something I've never done. I think I'll let Laura take this question. You sure. can also find out all kinds of help at um, Mount Vernon. That's great, Laura. Mike. Thank
5: you for that great. question. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. Um, there is a book called A Sip Through Time that was written by Cindy Renfrew, and she is another uh, food historian. And that is the complete history of beer from the earliest recipes that were stamped in cuneiform on clay tablets all the way up through uh, through time. But uh, you might also want to visit Colonial Williamsburg, which has a brewing program, and they do brewing in the spring and the fall, and their website should tell you when they're doing that. As does Mount Vernon. Yes, as does Mount Vernon.
1: We have another caller. This one's going to be a surprise to you, Nancy. Erin from Dublin. Go ahead with your call. Hey,
3: Mom. Hey, honey. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, are you? I just wanted to call in and talk about being a um, test dummy for the recipes of the book. Um, hey, are you an only child, Erin? No, no, there are plenty of us to go around.
1: (laughs) But you get to be a guinea pig for your mom. Uh,
3: Right, and it was a real pleasure. Um, Your listeners might be interested to know that she did not uh, know how to cook until she got married, and she's come a long way (laughs) in uh, all those years. Uh, Also, there's a lot of interesting history in the book as well as the recipes, and I was a proofreader for the book in uh, it was I'm a nurse, and I was really interested to hear that uh, women uh, that fireplace injuries were the second leading or was it the second
4: leading cause of death mom behind childbirth? At least in Britain. there's some yeah. question about that here.
3: from fire from cooking yeah. on, the fire on the fire was one of the leading causes of death yeah. in women in colonial times, so, I thought that was a really interesting thing. And also to let people know that I, I'm also a vegetarian, <laughs> um, but there are a lot of recipes that are really good for vegetables and breads and desserts, that, and you can modify them to our modern concerns about health, and they still taste good.
1: But did you find that the colonial settlers were meat-centric?
3: Um, Mom, I guess you could probably speak to that better.
4: I think so, but... Uh... They had a lot more vegetables than I think we've been aware of, yeah, and, and cooked in very creative ways.
3: So, you, so what was it like growing up with mom before she learned to cook? Well, she knew, to, knew how to cook by the time I came along. By the time you came along, okay. <laughs> so, I was, um, but she loved cooking and experimenting and um, really actually went back to school when uh, we were all in elementary school, and so she... Um, really blossomed and came into her own uh, a little bit later in life than, than some people, and she has never stopped going, uh, even at, at her age, which I'm not allowed to say. <laughs> <laughs> because that would incriminate you.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's such a pleasure. Erin, thank you for calling in this morning. Okay.
3: Thanks. I'll,
1: pa- I'll pay you later, Erin.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Virginia
1: from Pulaski, you have a corn pudding question.
7: Uh, Yes, thank you. I've um, been enjoying very much the um, talk this morning. Um, My mother was fond of corn pudding um, at holiday situations and then also otherwise. And I know you mentioned that as being an early dish. Um, I'm just curious as to how that um, dish came about and when it was kind of introduced. I think Laura Templin would take, yeah, well, take
5: that. Well, um, food historians can confirm that Native Americans sometimes mixed um, maize, or you know, corn as we know it, whole or ground, uh, with a lot of other foods—vegetables, fruits, nuts, etc. And what they made took a lot of different forms. It depended on the the consistency of what they were doing. So they um, fried, steamed, baked—you know—breads. They they made um, breads. the The early Virginia colonists talk about them making a bread that's kind of like a tamale, where they're taking what they call Called husk bread. They're taking the corn husk and they're putting a mixture, often a very soft mixture with fruit and so forth, of, of cornmeal into that corn husk and then boiling it and making a bread out of it that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure. that they also were making different um, comp, uh, combinations of things like succotash. You know, succotash is sort of a classic. Native American corn dish um, with uh, with beans and so forth. So, um, But corn pudding, as we Americans know it today, does descend from European vegetable puddings. And so this is an old world recipe that's running into a new world food and, and being changed. Being yeah. um, so you've got lots of different colonial Indian puddings. And um, Nancy Carter Crump is pulling out her recipe for us. Nancy, yeah, you've got it right in front of you.
4: Yeah. Um, should I read it? I, I mean, think what? so. Um, I've also got the corn fritter recipe that someone was talking about. <laughs> this is from Cape L. Carter's uh, cookbook. This is a manuscript cookbook that I worked with that is owned by Oatlands Plantation up in Loudon County. And the original recipe, as I said, it's uh, 19th century. If I can read my own writing here. It says, uh, scrape with a strong knife the grains from 12 ears of corn. To this, add a quarter of a pound of butter, four eggs well beaten with pepper and salt to your taste. Add nice milk or cream. If the milk from the corn does not make it liquid enough, it generally requires some. Stir all well together and bake in a baking dish. That's the original recipe. That's really great. Deborah from Gates,
1: you had a question, but did Virginia already ask it relating to cornmeal? Um... Hi. Hi, Deborah. How are you? And thank you for crossing over. You're in Gates, North Carolina. We appreciate your call.
3: Thank you. Yes, I, I have a question. I'm curious. My aunt makes this dish out of cornbread, and she calls it hot water cornbread. And what she do was you boil the water first, and you put yellow cornmeal in the bowl. You add a pinch of salt and sugar, and then you fry it. And I was wondering where did
4: that originate from? That Nancy, have you ever heard of that? I've not, but I wouldn't have being like an Indian technique?
5: Or? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, other, the Indians didn't use a lot of salt, actually, no. um, amazingly enough, because they, they got enough naturally in their diet. They didn't add a lot to their foods. But, yeah, I mean, that basically technique, that technique, technique of, yeah. of adding hot water to the cornmeal to kind of get it to stick together and then and then frying it up, it goes way, way back. That's well, the, and interestingly, the uh, English
4: women would have done the same thing with oats in their own country, so you they adopt to the corn over here do they have steel cut oats back then i love steel cut
1: oats just discovered mm-hmm. them thought they might have a long long history and i see two quizzical faces <laughs> sorry <laughs> Harry. no that's okay Harry from roanoke go ahead with your question or comment
6: morning ladies uh, very much enjoying your program uh, i have a question which uh, perhaps uh, concerns a historical artifact soup terrains Uh, If you visit uh, antique shops, uh, you very often will find these items. It's obvious they were not a decorative piece, so to speak, in colonial times, but they were actually used. And I'm wondering if that had to do not only with the method of cooking, which often was putting things in a pot and and boiling it, Mm -hmm. but also many people were dentulous. And, of course, they could eat, you know, a broth or soup and meat that had been well cooked. Would you care to comment, please?
5: Well, um, soup is extremely popular throughout history, in part just because it's easy to cook. Um, if you think about you're trying to run a farm, you're doing a lot of physical labor, you're in and out of the kitchen, you can put uh, soup on and stir it occasionally and and it usually won't burn. So um, whether or not you have teeth, soup was probably good food uh, for you throughout history. Um, But uh, it is certainly true that you're going to see those um, beautiful soup tureens, especially starting in the 18th century when dining was an art form and you wanted to put forth uh, an incredible table. And all kinds of fabulous soups come forward to us from, you know, everything from turtle soup, which was a big deal in the 18th century, um, to, you know, to thick stews or, or what they called pottages, kind of a one-pot meal, uh, that were popular amongst the soldiers. We're talking about colonial
1: cooking, and the number is 866-611-NEWS. That's 866 611
4: 6397. You have more to add to that, Nancy. Well, I was going to say that if you're learning to cook on the fire, making soup is the very first step, and that when I taught classes, that's the first thing I teach them is how to cook soup on the fire. So simple. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Priscilla from Williamsburg,
1: go ahead with your comment or question.
7: Uh, Hi. Yes, I want to tell you what a great program you've got. Really enjoying this, and it it is so timely, so beautifully timely. Um, As your your guest was uh, speaking about um, slave labor and how they did the hard work, the heavy the heavy work in the kitchen. You um, reminded me that I I have my great aunt's cookbook that um, and she was she was married in the 1860s right after the Civil War um, and and she and, and several other aunts were responsible for uh, my learning how to cook as I you know came into their homes, and they said, come into the kitchen, you can help. Um, in this cookbook, though, it is it is ancient cookbook. Uh, it starts out, when you go to the meat section, it, it's baked chicken. It tells you how to go to the pan and catch the chicken and prepare the chicken. Um, we won't go through all the gory details, but it does. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it always starts with the um, go to the barnyard Yeah,
4: (laughs) that's pretty common.
3: And Priscilla, how
1: much of of, the pig? Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) When you grew up, Priscilla, were you there from beginning to end, or did you not see the gory details of uh, chicken preparation?
7: Oh, I was there from beginning to end.
1: Well, let me ask you a question, because I know there are lots of parents sort of grappling with this question around food preparation for their own children, especially parents who are raising chickens on their own. Um, Is it a good idea or a bad idea to introduce kids to that entire process, including the uh, catching and killing of the chicken?
7: I I do not feel that it damaged me in any way, but I was um, exposed to women who really knew what they were doing. And it wasn't, um, you know, it was very professional and very um, uh, exact, Let's put it that way. You know, there wasn't a lot of flailing or blood or, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it was catch the bird, snap, um, bird under a um, a bucket. Uh, when the bird, when all the noise stopped, then, you know, pull the bird out, pluck the feathers, douse them in some hot water. You know, I mean, they did it in about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was boom, 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 boom. And it wasn't, as I say, there, there, there wasn't a lot of mess. You know, right. To it. So I think that that was that that made it um, um, less frightening, I
3: suppose.
1: Yes. So important to understand where our food comes from, and I think you 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 made a good point, which is it lacked the trauma that we exactly. might suspect.
7: Exactly. The only thing I can recall that um, made an impression on me was, um, as a child, I was not going to eat those eggs that came from inside that they found inside the chicken after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want yeah. to eat eggs that were laid. I, I didn't I want, I want to eat <laughs> eggs from <inside>. <laughs> <a> chicken. How <laughs> do you feel about eggs today? Oh, uh, they're fine. They're fine. Okay. <laughs> I, have to, I, still, I have to admit oh, I, I don't eat a lot of them because they just, you know, we eat differently today. You know, not so much of the heavy, heavy stuff. Um, but, you know, eggs are fine.
1: <laughs> Priscilla, <laughs> thank you so much for that input.
7: You're welcome. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Dave from Lynchburg, you have a question about soup.
6: Uh, yeah, I did. Um, I always understood that pre-refrigeration days that soup was a way of sort of storing the food because if you reheated it every day, it didn't have a
7: chance to go bad or grow bacteria. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you would almost have a, a never-ending pot of soup that was continually added to on the stove. Is this
5: true? Fact or fiction, ladies? I can't imagine a hungry farm family letting the soup last that long. But, I mean, you know, there's the old saw about peas pottage hot, peas pottage cold, peas pottage in the pot nine days old. Um, But, uh, you know, most of the time when folks in our past ate, they either ate something that was absolutely fresh, as we just discussed with the chicken that was just caught in the barnyard, or was absolutely preserved like a ham or a pickle that would last for years. And so I'm I'm really hesitant to suggest that you can keep your soup going for eternity and not poison your family. I I think uh, Laura's on target here.
1: Okay. (laughs) Of course, the whole idea of the herbs and the spices, is that an old saw that – Back then, it was a way to cover up. Meats
5: that might have been
1: spoiling, etc.
5: I don't see anybody spending $200 worth of spice to cover up a dollar's no. worth of bad hamburger. You know, I mean, we wouldn't do it today, and I can't believe our ancestors really did that back then either. That is one of the old saws. It is not true. Okay. Now, I want to know what
1: each of you will be doing for the holidays, whether it's the Thanksgiving or the Christmas holiday coming up. Anything special? And, and you can pass. You know, this is what you do for a living, so it's okay if you want to take...
5: <laughs> well, take <laughs> I will actually be spending foods and feasts at the museum, which has become my holiday tradition over the last uh, 13 years. And um, that's actually, uh, we have folks who come and volunteer with us, who come from all different states, They come in from uh, Connecticut and Ohio and so forth. And it's actually uh, a big celebration, and, and it's really a lot of fun, and we enjoy getting together and sharing the cooking experience of the historic foods. Laura Templin, give us the website for Jamestown Settlement and
1: Yorktown Victory Center. That's historyisfun.org. Great. Lots of great events coming up. And Nancy Carter-Crump, are you taking a pass on what you're going to do? Oh, no. No.
4: Thanksgiving is a huge holiday for us, and even more so than Christmas, really. Um, For years, we have had lots of people come at Thanksgiving. It's not as big as it was since we moved to Stanton, but... When we were in this part of the state, we would have as many as 40 people for Thanksgiving dinner. I did the pumpkin, the the uh, turkey, the pumpkin pies, the accompaniments, and everybody else would be a uh, dish. So it really was a Thanksgiving celebration. Uh, people would who wanted to watch the football games could do that. People who wanted to talk could talk. People to eat lots of food. We would gather around the table, my husband would say a blessing, and we'd dive in. Folks would come and go all afternoon. We still have this up in Stanton, but not quite as uh, many people as came in. Anybody from Stanton listening, give us a call. (laughs)
6: Sounds
1: wonderful. There's an open table invitation. Nancy Carter Crump, culinary historian and author. And Laura Templin, interpretive site supervisor at Jamestown Settlement and Yorktown Victory Center. Thank you so much for joining us next Friday at 9, an encore presentation of our poetry program, I'm May-Lily Lee for Virginia
3: Conversations.
0: Virginia Conversations on Virginia Public Radio is underwritten by the Virginia Education Association, the men and women working in Virginia's public schools. VEA, teaching, learning, leading. Online at veanea.org. And by listeners of this Virginia Public Radio member station. Listeners can hear this program again or access other Virginia Public Radio news content at virginiapublicradio.org. This is Virginia Public Radio.